0: This is Cutie Clinic. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 2021 in Fort Worth and virtually streaming. Today's case is clinic emergencies. Came to clinic this morning, a usual day, looking forward to the usual things that I do, but I walk in and there's mayhem. People running around, everyone looks distressed. There's a patient who's sick in room three. What's going on? The patient's unstable. They're taking vital signs. This is not rheumatology clinic. This looks like the ER at the county hospital. So what do you do? How do you handle this? What's your plan? Obviously they want you to take over and you're not gonna panic because you've got a plan. Number one, what's wrong? In this case, this is a patient who I don't know very well, who I haven't seen very much comes in and I quickly surmise by talking to him and to his wife that the problems are asthma, not doing good, new diagnosis of of atrial fibrillation, never had that before, Um, not taking previous medicines for arthritis, there seems to be a new intercurrent problem. So again your goal in these emergencies and urgencies is number one to figure out what what the problem is and then in doing so the clearer it is, the clearer you're going to know whether this is your problem, the primary care's problem, or a problem for a specialist or the emergency room. When it's not clear as to what the problem is and the patient is sick, you're going to default to C, send the patient to the emergency room. So the question then becomes when you're not there, how would this have been managed? You know, everyone's looking to you to manage these situations. You have to go over this with your staff. You have to have sort of, you know, fake drills, to know how, mock drills, to know how to manage this. They need to know, of course, which what they were doing when I got there. They were taking vital signs, they were getting a blood sugar, they were doing a pulse ox, so that when I got there, or when they called me, they could tell me the vitals, the details that I was going to need. If you're not there, your staff needs to know whether this is a, a decision to either call 911 send the patient to the emergency room on their own or send the patient to their primary care. If they don't know, the sicker the patient, the the more the reflex answer is dial 911, let the ambulance and the uh, hospital manage the situation. Again, they need specific guidance on what to do with chest pain, uh, shortness of breath, diaphoresis with nausea and vomiting, that's always a bad sign, fainting and hypotension. These are the things that are really going to need um, a drill, uh, a plan, and your guidance. Uh, again, I think that the real issue here is figuring out whether the situation is urgent, requires attention today or tomorrow, or emergent and really needs to go to the hospital. You know, I wrote I wrote about this back in April. I wrote a blog called Urgent or Not. And then I wrote it about, about it because the issue was, who do we need to see during COVID? And that was uh, the answer. If it's urgent, you need to see them. And urgent means face to face. Emergent needs either needs you in the hospital or the patient going to the hospital. So these were the guidelines I came up with for reasons that require your intervention, your patient's being brought in if they're calling with these presumed complaints: acute monoarthritis, because it could be septic, it could be gout. New front, new trauma with pain and swelling, new f- suspected fracture a new early onset inflammatory arthritis, inflammatory over the phone, how do you know? Hot, red, warm, swollen, they gotta meet all those criteria over the phone. Um, Sudden worsening of polyarthritis in someone previously very stable. And that sudden worsening should have either swelling or functional implications to merit an urgent visit. Because most flares are usually not, they're new and they're bothersome but they're not usually with swelling, not usually with a major functional implication. Fever than 102, bloody diarrhea, distal limb ischemia where the limb, finger, toe is turning all kinds of colors uh, and that's a new thing. New focal neurologic manifestations, uh, uh, suspected cauda equina or spinal stenosis that's new uh, especially if it has trauma involved, recent trauma uh, suspected transverse myelopathy, acute on, uh, onset of eye pain and blurred vision with red disc, that could be uveitis, acute uveitis, especially so in spa patients. Uh, uh, patients with hemoptysis, you worry about acute alveolar hemorrhage, and acute pneumonitis, shortness of breath, uh, fevers, etc. What are emergencies? Well, there's a few that we need to know about and they tend to happen in specific disorders. So, you know, RA would Strider, um, and that could be cricorytinoid arthritis or subglottic stenosis in someone with relapsing polychondritis. Seizures in any of your patients is, is never a good sign, especially lupus patients with seizures. That's always worrisome. Uh, other things in lupus that m- make me want to see the patient in the hospital would be altered mental status, very high fevers, coughing up blood, suspected pericarditis. Ankylosing spondylitis with a trauma, spinal trauma, or major fall. These need to be imaged right away and seen right away, probably best in the hospital. Inflammatory myositis with dysphagia, increasing dyspnea or rhabdomyolysis. Again, um, that dysphagia and dyspnea, the upper pharyngeal involvement, usually has some really bad bad outcomes if not viewed as an acute emergency. A scleroderma patient with potential uh, renal um, crisis would be hyper, hypertension, microangiopic, hemolytic anemia, etc. Um, Stell's patients who you think may have macrophage activation syndrome, they need to be seen in the hospital. Thrombotic events in any of your patients, especially lupus patients, that could be a new sudden MI, CVA, DVT, or someone who has the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. Again, the bottom line here is you need to prepare. You need to have drills. There needs to be a plan. Jobs have to be defined. Um, and patients need, uh, patients, your staff needs to know who's going to do what uh, and how the decisions are going to be made with you there and with you not there. Room Now Live, it's in Fort Worth. Again, Room Now Live is the best original hybrid meeting, meaning that we have a live meeting that you can come to in Fort Worth or you can attend online. Go to roomnow.live and find out more about our upcoming meeting in March. Tune in for more QD clinics. Hi, this is QD Clinic and I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow Live. It's gonna happen in Fort Worth and on your computer, streaming live March 20 and 21st, a day and a half meeting. Be there, great rheumatologists like us go to great virtual meetings, hybrid meetings like this. This episode of QD Clinic is about stopping meds. Yesterday was a bizarre day. Yesterday I had two patients back to back come in, both with the same story. I stopped my meds, I'm a mess. It was really kind of odd. They had many similarities. Both of them were sort of marginally controlled on a biologic and a DMARD, had some element of secondary fibromyalgia that always complicated the pain story, but both of them stopped their medicine. The RA patient, Ran out of Enbrel three months ago. Uh, He turned 65, was going to go on Medicare, uh, stopped the Etanercept, and didn't start anything else. And as you would imagine, over the course of uh, three months, his CDI, the Clinical Disease Activity Index, went from 10, 12, 13, something like that, to 31. Now with 12 swollen joints, PIPs, MCPs, MTPs, ankle, knee, uh, truly a mess. Not on any DMAR, not on any biologic. The second one was a psoriatic arthritis patient who lost her insurance because her husband was laid off with COVID and, uh, and for four months has been taking nothing. And she was on a lot of medicines for a lot of things. So it wasn't just her arthritis that was affected here, And she's a gigantic mess. She went from a CDI of 9 to a CDI of 55. Hello, hello, hello. That's about the upper limit of what you can actually get in a CDI. So I think, first off, I'd like to make the point that if you see a patient with a rapid 3 CDI, SDI, or GAS score um, that's over 30, the patient always has fibromyalgia. It's always the thing that amplifies the numbers to that extreme number. Now, they can have, as that 55 patient with psoriatic arthritis can have rip roaring synovitis too. But on the basis of just synovitis and some pain and functional implications, you know, it might have been half that number. But add in fibromyalgia, which was F- present in both patients, it amplifies the numbers significantly. So you should always think fibromyalgia when you see a metric that's 30 and higher. So the question on these two patients is one, how do you recapture disease control? And two, how do you prevent this from ever happening again? So recapturing disease control, actually not all that hard. It's sort of like the three S's, use the same drug, use drug samples, use steroids. You know, the uh, recent uh, study at ACR by Jeff Curtis looked at what happens when you stop embrel or methotrexate uh, and restart them. And they showed that uh, upon restarting that, the patients, 85% of patients recaptured low disease activity state, um, and a, nearly 100%, no, 85% recaptured remission numbers, and they were in remission in the beginning of the study, and nearly 100%, 95 plus percent, captured a low disease activity state suggesting it's really not that hard and using back the same medicine that was once working is a smart thing. Steroids as bridge therapy, temporizing therapy, and samples are ways to go. Um, I think the important thing here is if you can't use the same therapy and you can't use steroids, you need to then rely on drugs that work fast. What drugs work the fastest? Steroids, jack inhibitors, and this is the order in which I think they work fast. Steroids, hours to days, jacks, days to weeks, like two weeks. TNF inhibitors, could be first shot, could be second shot, then followed by abatacept and the IL-6 inhibitors, then followed by a few weeks to a few months by rituximab, and then your DMARDs, methotrexate, Areva, hydroxychloroquine, sulfazalazine, gold, taking forever. So use the drugs that work fast, even if it's only to use them for a short period of time. Who's to say you can't use a biologic instead of a steroid in people who can't take steroids? Brittle diabetics, people who can't tolerate steroids. Who's to say you can't use a short burst of Kinneret like you would for acute gout? Or even a short course of a weekly or biweekly TNF inhibitor given weekly for three or four doses while you're doing some other measure. I've done it. It actually works. Recognize that it's not just inflammation. It's also pain that can be mechanical. So do the measures that need to be done to control pain, bed rest, immobilization, splinting. Um, I always say, and get in a lot of trouble for saying, PTOT chiropractic is what you do while the patient's waiting to get better. Now those things do work, they're proven to work, and I'm disrespecting them by what I'm saying, but in fact, that's often the case. They are temporizing measures to keep the patient busy. And then you can and you can say the same for your voodoo, joint injections. We all love our joint injections. We think we're the best, but the fact is long-term data isn't very good about joint injections with steroids. Short-term, we know that they work well. So these are things you do to can recapture control. What can you do to prevent cessation flares? Um, number one plan, if they're 65, you gotta ask them, what are you doing with your insurance at the turn of the century here? Uh, what happens when you go on Medicare? Let's have a plan for a succession off of what you're on and what you can be on during Medicare. Um, You should probably be asking annually, pick a date that works for you. Make it tax day, make it their birthday, make it Christmas that you're always gonna ask about who pays for your medicines? What's the status of your insurance? Let's look ahead for the next year. Like why not have, you know, New Year's resolutions with patients and discuss especially the, the money aspect. When they ain't got the money, they don't have the meds. When they don't have the meds, you become more important, but there's less you can do. It gets really complicated. So I guess the the important thing is to let you be in the driver's seat. Let them know that you're the boss, you're the gatekeeper when it comes to taking medicine, staying on medicines, relying on other people, or relying on their own judgment. Bad idea. Most importantly, preach consistency. I tell my patients the goal is being boring. Boring to the point that you do the same thing, the same way, Take the same medicine, same diet, same exercise, same plaid flannel shirt. Whatever it takes to be consistent. Because when they get out of consistency, sudden death in the family. They got to go to Cleveland. They don't. They leave their medicines behind. They stop sleeping well. They stop exercising. They stop eating right. They they go to hell in a handbasket right quick, as we say here in Texas. So when the going gets rough the tough double down on being boring and consistent this is what you have to preach tell them they cannot get out of the habit the habit is what got them there it's not just one drug not just that magical jack inhibitor or il-6 inhibitor you gave them it really is the whole package of what you do that's it on how to avoid and treat cessation flares again remember room now live uh, I think it's going to be a great hybrid meeting. You know, Room Now Live was the original and the best of hybrid meetings, meaning a live meeting or a streaming internet meeting. You can choose. We'll see you there. Hi, this is Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Kush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 20 and 21. In 2021, how's that for a coincidence? A live meeting in Fort Worth or a virtual meeting Stream to your living room. Today's case is not a case, it has to do with what do you do after you're vaccinated? What COVID rules apply? There's three issues here. First, what do you do when you're getting the vaccine? And this is your guidance for your patients, your patients who are healthcare workers, your patients who are lucky enough to get on a list to get the COVID vaccine, and it also applies to you after you've received the COVID vaccine because, yes, we're all getting the COVID vaccine because it is the right thing to do, correct? I see you all nodding up and down. Thank you very much. Um, So, rule number one, uh, what do I do with my therapies when I'm getting the COVID vaccine? The rule is you continue all your therapies. There's not a, a drug that you need to stop, nor hold, nor wait, nor delay. Anyone who says that doesn't know what they're talking about. There's only one Drug that you need to be wary of, and that is rituximab. And that is, you means that if you're getting the COVID vaccine, get it before you get the rituximab. After you've got the two doses of the COVID vaccine, two weeks later or four weeks later, you can then resume your rituximab. If you recently had rituximab and you want to get the vaccine, you have to wait at least six months until after the last dose of rituximab. Otherwise, you don't change your therapy. And by the way, this is also a recent uh, NPF, National Psoriasis Foundation, guideline on how you should uh, manage your biologics and or DMARD therapy when getting COVID vaccine. Their guidance number 4.6 is exactly what I just told you. The ACR task force is going to have an update on how we manage COVID vaccines. That's coming out in the next few weeks. Watch for that. I think it'll be very helpful to you in guiding your patients. All right, so you are the recipient, the proud recipient of two doses of the COVID vaccine. What do you do? Are you take off all your clothes, run around, hug everyone, sloppy sort of kisses and stuff like that? No, you don't. The CDC has come out with a rule um, because you don't know, well, you're gonna be protected most likely, right? 95% effective. You could still get infected. You could still um, pass on the the COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus to someone else, even though you are protected against it. So you still need to practice um, the same COVID measures. Continue to wear a mask, avoid congregate settings, social distancing and hand washing are still in play for you. There is an element of freedom for you, but you still have to work hard. At protecting other people. Moreover, you have to continue to be an example because this um, pandemic and all that has changed is going to go on for most of 2021. The last scenario is what happens in a patient who actually has been infected and now wants to get the vaccine. So this happened just today in my clinic. This happened to a colleague of, of ours. Um, and the rule is from the CDC, is that you should wait 90 days. I think you can wait 60 days and then do it. Why is it 90 days or 60 days? Because research thus far has shown of patients who have been infected with COVID-19, and by the way, this should be a proven infection, proven by PCR, proven by a classic constellation of symptoms. If it's not a proven infection, I wouldn't count it, but proven infection, um, they're protected for 90 days, meaning research thus far, we've got 300,000, Um, 360,000 patients who died so far with this and and millions who've been infected. The data shows that in the 90 days following infection, after the resolution of infection, no one's been reinfected. So that means that there's a a temporizing period, a period of latency where you're not going to be at risk. There are reports of patients who have been infected who have gotten reinfected. So, again, waiting 90 days, then getting the vaccine. I personally would wait 60 days and get the vaccine. Um, other than that, there are no, there is no other science to this particular recommendation, but it is good to know what the CDC and other infectious disease specialists are saying about that scenario. I'm sure there are more scenarios. We'll pick them up in future editions of the QD Clinic. Talk to you next time. This is QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, the original best hybrid meeting. This is going to be our third year. Hybrid meaning you get it your way. Stay home, watch it, or tune in however you want to tune in after the meeting, during the meeting, or come to Fort Worth. It's going to be a great meeting. Today, we're going to talk about my new and evolving, according to COVID, clinic routine. So at this point, and I've been doing this actually probably since June, I'm pretty much 50-50, meaning 50% of my clinic time is spent uh, face-to-face clinic. The other 50% is doing telemedicine. So let's first talk about clinic days where I'm actually doing face-to-face patient care. I show up and the routine is the same, whether I'm going to the county hospital and doing clinic there, or whether I'm going to our, our private clinics um, before I actually enter the building, there's an inventory of symptoms, exposures, risks that I have to sign off on. I think it's a good idea. Uh, if you think you've been exposed, you have an, another measure of responsibility um, to mitigate that in some way. I, I'm always subjected to a temperature check. You know, If my temperature is not 97.1, as it's been every day for like the last six months, there must be something wrong. But I'm remarkably consistent, at least as far as my temperature. So the rules are, uh, patients are told that uh, it's just, just going to be you in the exam room. Don't bring your family. Don't bring the crowd. Don't bring your, the congregation. The, there are pretty much no exceptions. It's you and the doctor in the room. The exceptions are elderly who need help and people who need help with communication. Uh, And we do make allowances for that because we want to practice physical distancing within the exam rooms. So that means I'm on this corner, they're in that corner. No one changes the chair where I want them to sit, uh, and it has to be my way. That's to make them safe. From start to finish, when I'm in clinic, I'm wearing a mask. I'm wearing goggles, and when I'm in the room with a patient, if I'm going to examine them, I'm wearing gloves. So we maintain six feet, um, the virtual exam is done, meaning I don't need to do a hands-on. Seeing them um, ver- you know, face-to-face is very important. Uh, I get to see them walk. I can actually see their whole body. I can see their body habitus. So there's a lot of things I can get just by watching them without necessarily touching them. But most patients, about half the patients who do face-to-face visits, I'm doing the virtual exam. You can see that on, on YouTube or on our, our channel that I have a virtual video exam that really is very, very effective um, in assessing the patient and where they go. If I have to do the exam, I put on the gloves, slide over, do the exam as is needed. And if I'm gonna do that exam, I'm gonna do a full 28, if I do a full 66 joint exam, score a full 28, listen to the heart, lungs, whatever I need to do. Um, And I think it's, again, it's very restrictive, but still we accomplish all the benchmarks we need to do. Patients, there's no mingling with other patients. They have very limited time in the waiting room. They check in. They get their, their survey form. They're whisked right to the exam room, uh, and, and they're going to be domiciled in that exam room until discharge, at which point they do an express checkout, and they go out a separate door. Hence, there's really no interaction amongst patients with other patients. Again, I want to say to my patients, coming to the hospital, coming to the clinic, coming to get your, your blood drawn is an incredibly safe thing to do. What about when I'm doing virtual visits? Well, I don't need to check my temperature and I don't need to do the risk inventory the the same way, but I do need to do televideo, telehealth visits, meaning that I refuse to do telephone visits. Telephone medicine is dangerous medicine. Uh, Again, you don't have enough tools at your disposal to make accurate assessments, and you're now relying on the ability of the patient to report to you about what's going on, which they're good at. But when, it, for instance, when it comes to swelling, nobody's good at reporting swelling. We have a tweet on that this week. The patient agreement between their reported swelling and physician determined swelling, not good at all. The correlation coefficient is 0.2. So the sensitivity is good, but the specificity is really bad. So again, there it has to be video and you can actually see swollen joints on video. Uh Yeah, I want to do a you know, a full palpable exam uh, in the future. But right now this is getting along really quite fine. So again, it has to be televideo. You know, there's some times when the video ain't working or the, the phone ain't working. Sometimes I'm doing a video exam and I'm using my cell phone to con- to connect with them because for some reason their microphone ain't working or my microphone isn't working. That's the problem. So to do good televideo, you need a good setup. You need a Zoom room. We wrote about that last week. It's called Zoomatology. You know, you need a good um, camera. You need a good microphone. I'm actually using my cell phone making this recording right now. I have a ring illuminator. Let me use my... I'm, I'm actually going to change my glasses position. And you can see those, those little white lights. That's not the whites of my eyes. That's the ring illuminator that I bought for 30 bucks on Amazon. I have a $30... Microphone called F I. So we get that F I F I N E. Thirty bucks. This is great. I have a little pop filter on there. Um, This is as good as a hundred dollar Yeti microphone. Um, So lights, video source, good audio source, and control your background. You know, you, you do you really want people looking over your shoulder and saying, "My God, he's got a yellow skeleton in the background." There's a guitar over there. What's the artwork? I mean, no, a flat, boring background. So it's all about you and your interaction with the patient. My apologies for my background. So what else do you, once you've got the Zoom room set up, you need to set expectations with patients in video calls. Meaning sometimes they think this is a social call. It's like a telephone. Hey, how you doing? The Brooklyn hack. No, it's not that. This is a medical visit. Set expectations, say, Today, we're going to cover a blank, 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 blank. And, you know, whatever your expectations are, do not give the impression that this is a social call and that we're going to do this all the time because then they're going to be upset when they get a bill, when you're getting when you're building a 99215 or 214 or whatever coding that you're using here. You need to start by asking their permission. Can we do a video, televideo, telehealth call with you today? Is that okay with you? Yes. You need to document that you are, in fact, talking to the right patient, this is usually painfully obvious to you, but it doesn't hurt to ask their date of birth, what street they live on, um, their medical record number, whatever. Two or three forms of identification are helpful. I usually tell my patients right from the start, we're going to cover meds and refills first. We're going to talk about any new diagnoses you have, and then we're going to get into your rheumatoid arthritis or whatever they're there for. So when you do your meds, get the refills done, cue it up and you might modify at the end and then hit the send button, you're done. When you get a new diagnosis, write it down, put it at the end of your note so you can address it in your problem list. And then begin with whatever you're going to collect. I am very keen on metrics. You can do a hack score, a pain score and a global score. And over the phone even, or even by video, you could do a rapid three score and follow that as your metric going forward. I always collect data on what's most important to you, what your sleep is, what your activity is, what your ac- exercise is. And then, you know, I like to sort of, uh, at some point, in, at, uh, either in the beginning of the visit, you know, or at the end of the visit, ask them flat out, "What's what can I do for you today? What do you most uh, need from me? And then they'll give you the great list or the really horrible list, but, you know, you're working for them. So why not start that way or end that way? And then There's the bonus question. You know, give them the thing that they don't expect, depending on what they're talking about. They've got a trip coming up. Tell them your tips about traveling. Tell them that it's okay to have their embryo out of the refrigerator at room temperature for 30 days with no problems. It will last. You know, give them what they need to hear. We need to talk about pregnancy. We need to talk about safety monitoring. We really need to talk about why you need to get that lab test every three months. You need to talk about... Who they should call when something goes wrong? Not your primary care, not your neighbor. You know who to call. Ghost, sp- but no, call Doctor Kush. I'm the guy that wrote that prescription. Uh, again, it's a bonus thing that shows that you're sort of thinking about them. And sometimes that bonus that you deliver may have nothing to do with their medicine, their rheumatoid arthritis, but really what's going on in their life. And you're going to give good life. Um, advice. Of course, today, these days, the big bonus thing is I tell them, I want you to know you're not immunosuppressed. You're not taking immunosuppressives. That applies to almost all my patients. That takes a tremendous burden of worry off of them. Now, I also tell them, however, when it comes to getting the COVID vaccine, you jump up and down and say, I'm immunosuppressed. I got rheumatoid. I got psoriatic arthritis. I'm taking biologics and methotrexate, and, and I think they're immunosuppressed. You know, So let them you, you play that card when they need to play that card. You support them in that way. But they need to know from you, the expert, that they are not at any grave risk for the disasters of COVID just because they're seeing you for the rheumatic diagnosis. There are some of our patients who are very immunosuppressed. Because they're on high dose steroids, they're actually on cytotoxics. They're you know they have other immunosuppressive conditions, but the vast majority of your patients, Bichette's, psoriatics, spondylarthritis, rheumatoid, fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, gout, etc. It's all not immunosuppression. So make that clear to them. That could be your big bonus. That's it for QD Clinic. Tune in tomorrow for another good one. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2021. It's in March, coming up. Today's case, rain outs or not. 57-year-old gal comes to see me, says she saw me 10 years ago with the same problem, but her doctors are worried about her. Why are they worried? Well, 10 years ago, actually about 20, 30 years ago, started having symptoms of what was called rain outs. Her fingers would get blue and white and all, all kinds of colors. And the question was, did she have an autoimmune disease that was worth worrying about? I saw her 10 years ago, said, don't worry, because we reviewed her labs. We reviewed her history. We um, did nail fold I don't have the records available, so I'm not sure exactly what I said. But she said I gave her a, a blessing and told her to come back if she wants to, but that she didn't need to come back. So in the last 10 years, she's continued to have new problems. And now she has rainouts with problems of dysphagia. She's had esophagitis. She's had esophageal strictures. She's had esophageal dilations. And her GI doctors keep saying, hmm, maybe this could be, you know, maybe. She's got a red rash on her face and whatnot. So she does have um, rosacea. Or it could be polymorphous light eruption. She doesn't have a malar rash of lupus. In fact, she has no other features of lupus. And she does have esophageal disease. And I, again, did nail fold and lab tests, and she is ANA negative, and her nail fold is not normal, but she doesn't have hemorrhages and dilations, which would make you worry. So this is a case of what? Is it Raynaud's? Is it primary Raynaud's? Is it Raynaud's phenomenon with a propensity, propensity for autoimmune disease association? Is this just acrocyanosis? So let's get into some definitions. Acrocyanosis is very common, very common in women. Up to 75% of women will have color changes upon cold exposure, usually bluish fingertip stuff. They don't have um, ischemic manifestations in their fingers. They have no uh, digital pits, pulp scars, infections, ulcerations. They don't have systemic disease. It's just they got reactive blood vessels. It's called acrocyanosis. Leave it at that. There are people who have mild rainouts sometimes. And I, I say you have rainouts when you are biphasic, when you either blanch and get white upon cold exposure, or get uh, dusky cyanosis upon cold exposure, or you get reactive hyperemia and redness upon rewarming. You need to have two out of the three phases for me to call your Raynaud's. By itself, mild, no tissue compromise. It's Raynaud's disease, primary Raynaud's, a low risk of progression to uh, a systemic disorder or to an autoimmune disease. Associations like scleroderma, dermatomyositis, systemic lupus, et cetera. Mixed, I don't use MCTD. I call it UCTD, undifferentiated connective tissue disease. And then lastly, you have Raynaud's phenomenon or Raynaud's in association with autoimmune disease. Patients who have triphasic, um, you might be more concerned about. Patients who have Raynaud's and have any one of the following are patients who are at higher risk for tissue compromise, organ involvement, and the development of autoimmune disease. Turns out that patients who are ANA positive, strongly positive, none of this one of 40 nonsense, but strongly positive, have a higher risk for an association with an autoimmune disease. Patients who have t- evidence of tissue ischemia, digital pulp scars, or periungal uh, um, ulcerations, or digital ulcers, uh, obviously sclerodactyly, are at greater risk for the development of some of these other disorders. Um, and then nail fold capillaroscopy um, nail fold capillaroscopy the, the, the finding you don't want to see are hemorrhages and dilations. Those are seen in patients who get scleroderma and its variants or dermatomyositis or are at greater risk of uh, such severe t- tissue ischemia that can have ulcerations or even um, um, autoamputation. So again, that's the risk factors for patients who have crossover from just Raynaud's symptoms to Raynaud's phenomenon and a risk of autoimmune disease. Um, this patient, again, Raynaud's disease with an esophageal problem. Uh, I, too, am worried about it. That's why I did the laboratory tests and the nail fold capillaroscopy and she doesn't have anything. So she gets a good, clean bill of health. Uh, unless she gets another uh, manifestation of sclerodermatous disease, limited or widespread, then we're not going to consider such a diagnosis in her. That's it for Cutie Clinic. Tune in for more.